On May 24, 1970, it's a few years ago, after several years of preparation, the uh, former Soviet Union began a massive scientific drilling project on the Kola Peninsula just off of Finland. And their goal was basically to, to drill a hole as deep as they could possibly go to discover what it is they could find out about the Earth, the Earth's crust. And they had originally tried and targeted to drill 1,500 meters into the Earth. If you do your calculation real fast, that's about 9.3 miles down is what they tried to do. And 13 years later, in 1983, the engineers had reached 7.5 miles into the Earth when they encountered some major physical problems. They had... Um, a huge section of the boring pipes tore off and um, they tried to overcome those, took another line down there. And finally, in 1990, more than 20 years after they began drilling, they actually reached their goal of 9.3 miles into the earth. But then soon after that, they, they thought to go even further than that. Soon after, the, though, they, the technical difficulties they encountered caused them to, to stop this project came to be known as the Kola Superdeep Borehole. And to this day, it remains the, the deepest hole on the planet Earth, 9.3 miles down. Now, it was interesting as I researched this hole a little bit, it, it seemed to me that all, all I read about this hole that they dug was the incredible surprises that the people experienced, the scientists experienced as they dug down. First of all, the scientists predicted the temperatures 9.3 miles, miles down would be 100 degrees Celsius. Right? It's about temperature that water boils. And by the time they actually got down there, it was 180 degrees. And you think about that, that's, that's nearing closer to oven temperatures more than just boiling temperatures. Scientists were also surprised to find the water, so much water beneath the surface of the earth. They didn't expect that at all. They expected all the water to have boiled up and, and gone up and evaporated, but they found a ton of water down there that they didn't expect and made their drilling more difficult. They also surprised to find out how much hydrogen gas was down there. Their scientific models didn't predict that at all. Hydrogen gas was, as they said, in the, the mud that was coming out of the hole was just bubbling, boiling in the, uh, the mud that came out. Also, this is for more the technically minded among you. They were surprised to discover some of the seismic velocities. Who knows what a seismic velocity is? What is it, Phil? Uh, that's seismic. That's where we're getting at. Seismic velocity has to do with the, the speed of sound in rock. And so what they can do is they can sonar down and see how it refracts and reflects, and they can base their different layers, and they found out that it kind of was shattered. Their theories were shattered a little bit when they dug down and so some of that has implications about what we can predict about the different strata down below that we thought we knew, but we don't know. And really what it's caused these scientists to do is um, really question right, what lies beneath the surface of the earth if all these theories were shattered. You know, we might think that we know so much about the earth in which we live, but even the deepest, most expensive hole ever dug in the history of mankind reveals that we know so little. In fact... The deepest hole that we dug was a quarter of 1% to get all the way down into the, the, the center of the earth, right? So in other words, if, we, if the earth is an apple, we have yet to break the peel. I mean, we, there's just so much about this planet that we don't even know. And, and what's interesting also, if you realize, these Soviet scientists weren't dummies. They were highly intelligent. They were up to date on the current theories, the latest scientific geological theories, they knew what theories predicted they would find, and yet when actually faced with the data that arose out of this dig, they found that it, it contradicted what the theories expected. It says they don't know what's down there. And this hole in the ground really is a great opening illustration to the topical sermon series that we're starting today entitled, Not Our Ways. It's normally our pattern to go verse by verse through books, but this summer for eight weeks we're going to take a break from that a little bit and just talk about different scripture passages that speak about how God's ways are just not our ways. The seed of these sermons um, came from a, a sermon preached by Edward Payson nearly 200 years ago in which he preached, he called it um, God's ways above men's. 
And uh, throughout this message, Edward Payson describes the many ways in which God's ways are far beyond our ways. And it can kind of blow your mind and we can only begin to grasp them. And what we've done is actually we've taken this sermon, we've printed it up and put it on the back table. And would really encourage all of you, I, I sent you many of you a link to it on the internet, you can read it out there. Uh, Tom Galen, you said you read this and what was your comment to me? Very good. Hope it kind of mind blowing, I think, in some sense, right? All the different ways that God's ways are above our ways. And, and really that's my, my goal. I, I want to, I want to just lift high who God is and I want to show you that God does things in ways different than we do them. And ultimately then I want you to see that we need to trust what God says rather than fight against what He says in His Word. His ways are far beyond ours. I want to read a portion of Payson's sermon to give you a little, a little flavor of it. It might be a little bit difficult. Um, he wrote 200 years ago. The reading style is a little bit difficult, but it, it can be handled. Here, here's what he said. He said, God, God's ways and thoughts must be above ours because in situation and in office, He is exalted far above us. God is in heaven and we are on earth. We occupy the footstool and He the throne. He's the creator and the preserver. He is, of course, the rightful governor of the universe. All worlds, all creatures, all events are subject to His control and He is under a blessed necessity of overruling and conducting all things in such a manner as to promote in the highest possible degree His own glory and the universal good. Informing and executing his purposes, therefore, he must take into view not only the present, but also the past and future circumstances and events. Not the concerns of a single individual only, but those of the whole race of beings in heaven, earth, and the worlds around us. Now consider for a moment the extent and duration of Jehovah's kingdom. Think of the innumerable armies of heaven and perhaps scarcely less the numerous hosts of hell, the multitudes of the human race who have existed, who now exist, who have existed, and hereafter will exist on earth before the end of time. This is then raise your eyes to the numerous suns and worlds around us. Borrow a telescope of the astronomer and penetrating far into the unfathomable recesses of the ethereal region, see new suns, new worlds still rising to view and consider that all that we can discover is perhaps but a speck, a single sand on the shore in comparison with what remains undiscovered. And God's plan of government for this boundless empire must embrace eternity. Consider these things and then say whether God's purposes, thoughts, and ways must not necessarily be high above ours as the heavens are above the earth or as His sphere of action exceeds our. Must not the thoughts and ways of a powerful earthly monarch be far above those of one of His subjects who is employed in manufacturing a pin or cultivating a few acres of ground? Can such a subject comp competent to judge of his sovereign designs or even comprehend them? How far then must be the thoughts and ways of the eternal monarch of heaven, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, exceed ours? And how little able are we to judge of them farther than the revelation which he has been pleased to give enables us? Did you catch that? He's saying that because God is far above us, in office, He reigns, place, location, He reigns in heaven because He's got the whole scope of eternity, because He sees the whole plan holding before Him. He takes into account everything in the past, everything He's going to want in the future, everything in the present. He takes into account His own sovereign pleasure. His ways are a bit different than our ways. And we need to accept that rather than fight against it. Now, in the heart of His sermon, <clears throat> He gives eight illustrations of the ways in which God has done things differently than we may have done them had we created a world. And I want to just take each of these eight points and merely just kind of open them up and uh, establish them and, and bloom them and blossom them and tease them out for you a little bit in each of my messages. And in all of my messages, <clears throat> I want to show you again and again and again how God's ways are not our ways, which ultimately my hope and prayer is that you will, will then worship the God we have. He's a marvelous God and adore Him with greater heart and greater passion than ever before. 
Because constrained to our natural thinking, we'd never create a world and a universe the way he did. It's just we wouldn't. But it's clear that he did. Well, his first point that he brings out in his, in his um, sermon is the existence of evil. Let me read his first point. <clears throat> he says this, In permitting the introduction and continued exercise of natural and moral evil, God's ways and thoughts are very different than ours. Why should He permit angels or men to fall? We cannot tell. That He did permit them to fall is certain. Because had he thought proper, he could doubtless have prevented their apostasy. It's also certain that he still permits the existence of natural and moral evil. Because if he chose, all things considered, to banish it from the universe, he could easily do it. But if we had been consulted, we should have decided it was best that sin and its consequences should never enter the world. Or if they must enter, that they should be immediately banished. In this particular, therefore, God's thoughts and ways are evidently not like ours. Of course, the manner in which sin came into the world in the human race is seen in Genesis chapter 3. I invite you to open your Bibles there to Genesis chapter 3. When God created the world, it was a, a perfect world. Throughout the creation account in chapter 1, the comment comes again and again and again that God saw that it was good. God saw His creation, that it was good. God saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And then culminating in verse 31 of chapter 1, God saw all that He had made and behold, it was very good, is what He said. But in chapter 3, we see things take a turn for the worse. They turn bad. Adam and Eve disobeyed and brought a curse upon us all. Let me read it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The big question is, why did God allow this? I mean, Edward Payson says that God could have stopped it. I mean, look back in chapter 2, verse 16, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Why did God create the tree? I mean, every time we create something, we want to create it perfect. If it's not quite right, you ever had a, a document that you write up maybe on your computer and you print it out and you miss one little word? What do you do? Throw it away and reprint it. God being perfect could have printed it perfect exactly how He, how he wanted. He, he didn't need to put this tree in the garden. He could have stepped in and stopped Eve right here. Eve, don't do it. I mean, God walked through the garden. God full well knew everything was going on. He could have stopped it, but He didn't. And furthermore, the evil that exists in the world, He can stop it now if He wants to, but He doesn't. He lets it go on. I think His ways are different than our ways. And really, that is our point this morning. God's ways are different than our ways. And the question comes, when you encounter such strange things, you have a dilemma. Are you going to embrace... What you think is right in your own logic and in your own mind? Or will you submit yourself to God's Word and believe what God says? That's the question that all of you face. Sadly, I'll say sadly, most people trust their own logic and intelligence rather than relying upon the truth of God's Word. Um, natural man does that. Oftentimes, many Christians do that too. 
They've got their notions of what they think is right. When encountered by Scripture, they'll, they'll, they'll adjust it. And maybe even today, I'm going to say some things that perhaps might be a little shocking to you. And you might say, ooh, I'm not sure if that's right. Well, I just ask you to be patient with me and to say, do you see those things in Scripture? Um, this message this morning is going to be a little bit different than normal. We're not, we're not going to exposit Genesis 3. I thought about doing that, but I want to kind of take a whole scope of Scripture. We're going to go to many passages. You can write them down. You can wait till the notes come out. Um, they'll be on the Internet Tuesday night. And you can look at those and read those and study them through and see if how I've depicted God is right because it might just, it, it might just um, address some ways in which you're thinking of God wrongly. It, it might do that. Many people, though, will trust their logic rather than relying upon the truth of God's Word. This is true in the case of many who don't believe. In fact, um, I remember encountering a longtime friend of mine on this very issue of the existence of evil in the world. And uh, he and I are fairly good friends in high school, exposed to many of the same things, went to the same schools, we took classes together, we played on athletic teams together. Um, throughout our high, Through high school, we both attended church, attended different churches, but at least was a moral upbringing, a Christian upbringing, whatever, surrounded by uh, Christian people. When we graduated, we all, both went off to college, and that's where our paths diverged. Through my college experience, I was compelled to go to seminary to study the Bible. And through his college experience, he left his faith. He was a philosophy major, had encountered some various worldly philosophies that exist, and found their arguments more compelling in his own mind, then he found the Bible. And I remember about 15 years after I'd graduated, um, I'm sorry, about 15 years ago, uh, I'd just graduated from seminary. My friend, oh, he's this guy, he believes the Bible. And uh, he set up an appointment with me, kind of chased me down. And um, I remember, still remember the place where we met and we talked. And little did I know that he was going to show me and disprove the Bible before me. I didn't know that was his agenda, but that was his agenda. One of the first topics... We talked about it. He said, you know, Steve, we both grew up in religious homes, but I've discovered some things I just can't understand about the Bible. And he was very, very methodical in what he did. And, and this is what, these aren't exact words, but went something like this. He said, Steve, you know, when I went to church, I was taught that God was all-powerful. Right? He created the universe. He created us all. He seated himself in the heavens. He's strong and powerful to do whatever he wants. Nothing comes to pass apart from his will. Do you believe that, Steve? I said, well, sure, I believe that. This is okay. And then, then he said, well, over here, I was also taught that God's a good and loving God. That angels surround him, beholding his holiness and his purity. And, and his eyes are too pure to behold evil. And it means that God is righteous and pure in all his ways. He can't do evil because it's not in his nature. He said, do you believe that? I said, well, sure. Now he thinks he's got me. Now he comes right in the middle and he says, well... There's sin in this world, Steve, isn't it? I mean, it's crime every day. People are murdered. Sickness affects us all. Eventually, every one of us will die. Do you think there's sin in the world, Steve? I said, yeah. Okay, now he's really got me. He's got God is omnipotent and, and God is benevolent. He's good. And sin exists in the world. And he says, so, Steve, how do you account for the evil that exists in the world? I said, what do you mean? He says this. If God were a good and loving God... Certainly, he'd never want sin to come into the world. Maybe he tried to keep it out. But simply, he was unable to stop it from coming in, which shows he's not all-powerful as you thought. Or maybe God is all-powerful. Could have prevented sin from coming into the world. Why didn't he? Well, maybe he's not as good as you think, Steve. You can't have an all-powerful, all-good God seems to me the presence of sin in this world compels us to sacrifice one of these two things. Either God is not all-powerful, He's not all-good. He thought He had me. And I thought I had Him. I tried to explain what I could from the Bible, and ultimately, as is often the case, I, I couldn't win Him over. I couldn't convince Him that God is both. God is all-powerful, and He is all-good. Now, you need to know that my friend didn't come up with this dilemma on his own. Nor is it the people in this generation that's just discovered it. Throughout the history of the church, it's always been, um, been acknowledged as a problem. In fact, it's been um, so much thought about, it's often referred to as the problem of evil. Theologians always talked about John Calvin and his institutes devoted uh, an entire chapter, nine pages, to this specific issue, how it is that, that uh, a good, all-powerful God um, can have evil. 
in the world. Now, getting back to my friend, uh, I, I hope it's clear to you the path that he took to deny his faith. At the end of the day, he's trusting his own logic rather than his scriptures. Since he wasn't able to harmonize the truth of scripture with his own thinking abilities, he trusted in his intelligence rather than the unchanging truth of God. Now, now think about how foolish this is. Who are we as his puny creatures to exalt our own logic above God's wisdom? Do you see how foolish that is? That's what he was doing. He said, my logic rules and reigns over God's manifold wisdom. And Edward Payson makes this point again in this sermon. He says, God's thoughts and ways must be infinitely above ours because his nature and perfections raise him infinitely above us. He is a self-existent, independent, all-sufficient, infinite, eternal, pure, and perfect intelligence. We are dependent, finite, imperfect, frail, dying creatures fettered by gross, heavy bodies and exposed to the influence of innumerable infirmities, temptations, and prejudices which bias and blind a reason. But more particularly, God is infinitely superior to us in wisdom. He's the all-wise God. Even the foolishness of God, says the apostles, wiser than men, and the angels who are far above us in wisdom and in comparison with him are chargeable with folly. He must therefore be able to devise a thousand plans and expedients and to bring good out of evil in numberless ways of which we never could have conceived and of which we are by no means competent to judge even after they've been revealed to us. If the ways and thoughts of a wise man are above those of a fool, how much more must be the ways and thoughts of the all-wise God exceed ours? See, God's ways are not our ways. And the fact remains that God is omnipotent and He's benevolent and He's created a world in which evil reigns. Because evil does reign in our world. My call to you today, as we go through these things, trust the, way with, trust the ways of God and the details of how and why God created a world like this, allowing the fall and working through it today. Simply because His wisdom is far beyond ours. And and I'm not calling you today to disengage your mind and not to attempt to think about these things. I'm not calling you just to leap with blind faith and say, oh, of course God is right. No, I think you need to, to, to wrestle with these things and struggle with things. But you need to be careful. You need to be careful in denying a truth of Scripture so as to satisfy your logic. Richard Veith put it far better than I could. He said, believers are trapped in a dilemma. If they seek an explanation for the apparent incompatibility of God and evil, then it seems they're trying to take heaven by storm. And that's not what we want to do. We want to tremble at His Word. We want to come humbly before the Lord. Yet, if they rest their case in mystery, okay, that's how it is. He says they run the risk of naive credulity or of even believing self-contradictory nonsense. There's really no escape from this predicament, so we must be content to try to muddle through, as the British so aptly put it. There are no final answers, but surely some answers are better than others, so we must seek the best answers we can find, all the while acknowledging the mystery. And that's what I want you to do. Seek the best answer you can to this question and acknowledge the mystery because God's ways are above our ways. So let's begin to muddle through these things. We're going to start going to Scripture. You can just write them down. You can turn with me in your Bible. We're going to go really fast. Um, but that's what we're going to do. First of all, let's affirm that God is omnipotent, like my friend was talking about. God is omnipotent. That is, He's all-powerful. Nothing outside of His power or authority exists. He's sovereign over the universe, reigns and rules over it all. And the number of Scriptures that um, speak this are many. In fact, if you want to open to Psalm 93... It just even says it there, the very first verse, real succinctly. It says, the Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established and it will not be moved. It says in 97, Psalm 97, verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. It says in Psalm 99, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. Over in Psalm 115, verse 3, we see again a statement of just the absolute sovereignty of God. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. It's a picture of God. He sits in the heavens. Whatever He wants, He does. He's never deprived of anything that He wants. Daniel. You turn over there, Daniel chapter 4, 
says his kingdom, verses 34 and 35. His king, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. There's no interruptions to God's kingdom. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. There's nobody outside of his rule and his reign. Every generation is under his rule. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. Nobody else has comparable significance compared to God. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven. God moves heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, He moves the earth and no one can ward off His hand. No one can stop God and say, God, stop! You can't do that. God wants to do it. He'll do it. No one can say to Him, what have you done? No one can question God. That's just who God is. He's absolutely sovereign over all things. In Isaiah 46, in verse 10, we read a similar affirmation of the sovereignty of God. The Lord declares, says, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. What I say will go, I'll do whatever I want. Ephesians 1.11 reads, The Lord works all things after the counsel of His will. Everything He works out exactly according to what His will wants and decrees. Now, these are just a few verses. We could go to more that speak of the absolute sovereignty of God. I quote them, though, to demonstrate to you the Bible isn't fuzzy at all when it speaks about the sovereign, omnipotent power of God. He does whatever He pleases. In fact, what's also interesting is the Bible never gives us a hint that, that maybe His sovereignty knows uh, just maybe a little bit less. The Bible never gives us a hint of that. It always speaks of God in the most supreme, highest of words. You know, as many of you know, I broke my elbow a few weeks ago, and it's it's feeling it's feeling pretty good, all right. But uh, there still are some things I can't really lift heavy things on my left arm yet. I just I can't do that. Um, I can't. I'm like a one-armed bandit when I got to lift heavy things in recent days. I can't I can't twist it and, and lift. And I can't yet touch my shoulder. That's about all that, that I can do. It looks, it looks pretty good. But there's some limitations of it. Now, when the Scripture des- describes God, we never get any hint that there's any kind of limitation in His movement. He doesn't have a bum elbow. Not the slightest little bit is He inhibited in any way concerning His power. Psalm 135 Verse 6 says this. It says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. It's pretty exhaustive. Heaven above, earth above, in the deeps below, even 9.3 miles below the surface of the earth. God does whatever He pleases. God's all-powerful. Now, the Bible is just as clear regarding His goodness. God is good. Again, I'm just going to give you a few verses from the vast things that we could do. Psalm 100, verse 5, says it very succinctly. It says, The Lord is good. His loving kindness is from everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations. There it is. The Lord is good. Psalm 106, verse 1. says, Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Psalm 107, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Psalm 118, verse 1, Psalm 136, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Just an an overarching characteristic of God is that He is good. Indeed, God is the standard of goodness. Jesus said, Luke 18, verse 19, No one is good except God alone. The Apostle John said, God is love. The epitome of goodness is God. God's the source of all good. James 1, 17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Psalm 119, verse 68, You are good and you do good. His kindness is vast. It extends to all. In Acts 14, verse 17, the Apostle Paul is talking um, to people at Lystra, I think. He said, God gives rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The fact that people upon the earth take another breath, the fact that they eat shows His goodness to them. 
His goodness extends even to the wicked. God, Jesus said that God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and to send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's the extent of God's good. It pervades all of the earth. To be in God's presence, you need to be purified of your sins. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says, Without holiness, no one will... No one will see the Lord. You need to be absolutely pure and holy in order to be in God's presence. That's the point of the the seraphim and the holy angels flying around. They're covering their eyes. They're covering their feet because God is so holy. And holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, what they say. And it's infinite goodness. It's infinite separateness. It's infinite sanctifying nature. That's what God is. He is the epitome of goodness. There's no evil with God at all. Psalm 5, verse 4 says, "You You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. First John 1 John 1.5 God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Speaks about God. God is good. He's omnipotent and He's benevolent. He's both those things. And then to put the third piece of the equation together, our world is filled with sin. I'm not going to go through massive verses on that because all you need to do is look outside. Look in your home. Look at your children and you will see there's all sorts of immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. It's all over. see it in marriages. see it in work relationships. We see it in the world. Sin is all around now, with those things being said, the question comes for the unbelieving skeptic. And, and I want to read this question just so you see it. If God is omnipotent and allows all this suffering, then He's not benevolent. He's not a kind-hearted God and not loving. If He's loving to the whole world and allows all this suffering, then He's not omnipotent. Given the fact of evil or the fact of suffering, we can never conclude that God is both omnipotent and benevolent. That's the issue on the table. All right. Um, boy, I've got a lot of stuff to go through. Let's just say it this way. When presented with this, many Bible-believing believers, many Bible-believing Christians, whatever, professing believers, do you know what most often happens when encountering this situation here? God is omnipotent and God is benevolent. Do you know what they do? Which one do they shoot at? They always, well, not always, most often shoot at God's omnipotence. They take His omnipotence and they seek to bring it down. Because if you bring down His omnipotence, you can justify some of the evil because God had good intentions but just couldn't get it done. Like, for instance, there are many who um, say that God is not sovereign in His knowledge. He doesn't know what's going to take place. And think about that. If you have a God who doesn't know what's going to take place, He can, Genesis 1, create this perfect world And not knowing what's going to take place. And then, boom, sin happened. And God was like, whoa, what happened? And then, think about, well, okay, we've got to have contingent plans. And and those people who believe this, in fact, there is this theology. You know what it's called? It's called open theism or openness of God theology. And it is is rampant around the church today. Um, In fact, I even preached a sermon on it several years ago about the openness of God. People believe that God doesn't know the future and it can branch off. Future can branch off like a chess game and somehow you don't know how it's going to go, but it's going to go one line and God has some things. You know, they, they're Bible-believing enough that they, they say, well, God knows some things in the future that the Bible speaks about. But all that, He doesn't know anything else about the future. So you're going down and basically you see what they've done? They say evil can exist because God was not powerful enough to stop it or even anticipate it. Because they brought down his sovereignty. Now, you need to know also that those who advocate this view called open theism fundamentally advocate the view to solve the problem of evil. That's why they believe this, because they're trying to solve this problem. And so, with this problem of God, they want to rescue God by reducing his sovereignty. It's fundamentally what they do. And... You know, you can look on the internet. If you want, I'll print one out for you next week about my message upon the, the omniscience of God and how He does know and how open theism, I don't believe, um, racks up with Scripture. But just give you a few Scriptures. Psalm 139, verses 3 and 4. David said, You, God, are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all. If He knows David's words you're going to speak. He knows your words you're going to speak. He knows the future. 
He said, Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, right? When David was in the womb, yet to be formed, God saw the substance that was as of yet unformed, that would be formed, that God see and saw. He said, And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. There was David's life. God wrote them all in the book, all the days, that David, the day he was born, the day he's going to die, where he's going to go, where he's going to live. God knew all that. Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. The Lord demonstrates why He's God. He's God precisely because He knows the future. He says, I'm the first and the last. There's no God besides me. Who, who is like me? Let Him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let Him recount to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, let them declare the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Let's see them try to predict the future like I did. That's what God says. He says, I am God because I can predict the future. And on top of this, there's a handful of texts in the New Testament that speak about God foreknowing those He would ransom in Christ. The view of God not knowing the future is, is very difficult to reconcile with Scripture. So, but others, others seek to um, solve this problem of God being omnipotent and God being benevolent by reducing His sovereignty in another way, saying, well, God is sovereign over everything except the will of man. He will not exercise His sovereign will over man's will. He creates us, but He's not sovereign over our choices. Oh, He knows the future in the sense that He knows the choices that we will make, but He's not going to interfere with our choices because He's not sovereign enough. And in that sense... I mean, the entrance of sin and suffering in the world is easy, right? Evil has come because Satan, I created him perfect, and he then chose his way on his own. And uh, here was Adam and Eve, and they were right there. And see, I'm not sovereign over that. And therefore, since God is not sovereign over that, he couldn't stop it. And therefore, not stopping it, he let evil come into the world. Because he couldn't, because his sovereignty is not full and right and supreme. Now, to a great extent, all that I spoke about, about um, Satan being responsible for his own sin, Adam and Eve are responsible for their own sin, absolutely true. Sin and suffering exist in the world because of our sinful choices. But what these in this camp say is reducing God's sovereignty said that God is not sovereign to exercise His will in the will of men. Because I've got to reduce that. And the difficulty with this view comes when the Bible speaks about His sovereignty over past, present, and future events. It doesn't merely say that God knows the future. It says that God causes the future. Okay? You've got to catch that. It's not merely that God knows what's going to happen. It's that God causes what's going to happen. And that blows that theory out of the water, I believe. Consider the following verses. Proverbs 16, verse 33. says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Right? When people are flipping a coin to make a decision about some matter, God knows whether it's going to be heads or tails. You look at the beginning of every football game, they go out and they're going to flip it. It's every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over a coin flip. He causes heads or He causes tails. The decision comes from the Lord. Isaiah 46, verse 10 says that God is declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In other words, God decrees whatever will happen from the beginning of time until the end of the time. He ensures that the decrees will come to pass. He says, I will accomplish my good pleasure. And again here, we see God's hand in the affairs of men. It's not merely that God knows what's going to happen. He says, here's what I have established. It's going to happen. And how is God going to have it happen but by moving in the hearts of people to make sure it happens? That's what the Bible speaks. He causes the future. In Romans 8.28, right? That verse we all know and love. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Since many of the things that happen to us are a direct result of the actions of people, the only way for God to cause all things to work together for good is to exert His authority over the wills of men. It doesn't say God will just let everything happen and turn it into good. It says that God will cause all things for good to those who love God who are called according to His purpose. 
Because God is sovereign over the future and He causes the future to take place. How about Proverbs 21, verse 1? The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of a Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. God takes the heart of the ruler and moves him to make the decision which affects millions of people. And if God can move the heart of kings that affects millions, can He move your heart which affects maybe your three kids? Certainly He can. Certainly He does. So you can't say that merely God knows the future. The Bible speaks that God causes the future. And so... I believe that any attempt to solve the problem of evil by sacrificing God's sovereignty in any way is a bad plan. It's a bad plan. Don't play with God's sovereignty. You just can't, can't touch it. I think a better approach is to understand His goodness because His goodness manifests itself in a way that, that's kind of shocking to us. Okay? We, we need to affirm again, God is not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. God is light in Him. There's no darkness at all. God has never sinned in any way. He will never sin in the future. That is clear. But there are many passages in Scripture which, which describe God using evil to accomplish His purposes. Catch that? God uses evil to accomplish His purposes while Himself remaining pure and sinless. And that's where the disconnect, I don't understand, but that's where you need to understand is the problem in this whole problem of evil. It's not on the God's sovereignty side. It's on the side of how can God exert His sovereignty and use evil for His purposes and yet still remain absolutely pure and innocent because that's what He does. Okay? Here's what I want to do. This might start blowing your mind. I want to take you some Scripture passages where it looks like... Um, how can I say this? It looks like God is doing some things that we might say, ooh, is that, is that really what a good God would do? And it might, might recognize, but there are tons of scriptures like this, okay? So we'll just kind of go through these. And I'm not saying that God is sinning. I'm not saying that at all. Because God is light and there's no darkness at all. No evil dwells with God. But you've got to then take these verses into account. You ready? Amos 3.6, if a calamity occurs in this city, has not the Lord done it? It's a rhetorical question. Of course the God has done it. Because why? Because He's absolutely sovereign over everything. So, a tornado sweeps through a city in Kansas someplace, destroys many homes, kills many people along its path. But what's happened? Is it merely just a series of natural events? A, a warm front encountered a cold front, caused a twisting around, caused you know huge winds to swirl around, and then it just happened along this path that went into this town and wiped out a lot of people. Is that how it happened? Psalm 135, verse 6 and 7, true. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and earth and the seas and all the deeps. He causes, this is God, causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain who brings forth the wind from His treasuries. God forms tornadoes and God ordains their path. In the book of Jonah, did a storm just happen to arise? I know, Toby, you talked about this recently. How'd the storm come? God brought the storm. God brought the fish. He's in charge of the weather. <laughs> he's not just a weatherman. He causes the weather. He never misses a prediction because he says, oh, it's going to be, you know, whatever. Um, slightly overcast today. It starts to be a sunny day and God says, nope, slightly overcast. That's what God does. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Suppose a handful of Muslim extremists fly a few planes and a few buildings reducing them to rubble. What happened? Did these men just on their own decide, come up with this plan all by themselves? Or perhaps didn't the Lord send an evil spirit to trouble these men to incite them to carry out their wicked schemes for His own purposes? It's like God doesn't send evil spirits, does He? Well, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, I quote, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. In the Bible, here we see an evil spirit being sent from the Lord into Saul's heart to stir him in his wicked ways. How God does that and remains sinless, I don't know. Okay, I'm not saying I know this. I'm just saying that's what the Bible talks. That's what the Bible says. Unless you think that, well, maybe that was just you know a, a slip of the writer's, writer's pen there are like three or four other verses that speak explicitly about how 
that spirit came from the Lord, how it came from God. The servants, Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing him. 1 Samuel 16, verse 23 speaks about the evil spirit coming to Saul from God. The evil spirit from God came to Saul. A few chapters later, in 1 Samuel 18, listen, it came about on the next day, this was a while, but it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. And he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing his harp and with his hand, as usual, was a spear in Saul's hand. And so Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. God is sinless, but He uses evil to accomplish His purposes. And I believe the events of 9-11 were totally within the sovereign control of the Lord because the Bible doesn't give any room as calamity occurs in a city as the Lord not done it. And throughout the Scriptures, we see the Lord bringing affliction and calamity upon people. And you know, in one way, God uses agents to bring about His, His destructive work. The Lord allowed Satan to afflict Job, Right? Here, the Lord allowed Satan to afflict Job. Absolutely right. Took away all his wealth. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He killed Job's seven sons and three daughters. And yet, at the end of the day, remember what Job said? He said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What's Job saying? He's saying that God did this to me. And some might say, well, see, Job was speaking wrong. But the very next verse in Job 1.22 says... Through it all, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Everything he said, we didn't sin. I mean, that would be a sin to ascribe to God something he didn't do. How about this? And speaking of the plagues that came upon the Egyptians, is that is that is that calamity? Is that is there some what we might call evil? I mean, we're talking about firstborn people wiped out, vegetation wiped out, so that maybe there's a, a famine. Pestilence and livestock. And let, listen to what God says in Psalm 105. It says, He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against His words. He turned their waters into blood and caused the fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of the kings. He spoke, and there came a swarm of flies and gnats in all the territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in the land. He struck down their vines and their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territories. He spoke and the locusts came, the young locusts, even without their number, and ate up all the vegetation of the land and ate up the first of the ground. He also struck down all the firstborn in the land, the first fruits of all their vigor. Who brought the plagues? God brought the plagues. I mean, you just think about that. God brought hail upon the land which destroyed many of the Egyptian men and beasts who didn't take cover. He brought locusts to eat, for, eat up the vegetation. He struck down the firstborn through all of Egypt, going to each and every house and making a decision. There's the firstborn dead. There's the firstborn dead. There's the firstborn dead. And who did it? God did it without sinning. Listen to what God says, Exodus 11. Verse 1, one more plague I'll bring on Pharaoh in Egypt. About midnight, I'm going out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. You say, how did God do that? Well, I don't know, but you do have some clues later on. I, I don't know exactly where that is, but it speaks about the angel of the Lord going out and doing that. So maybe God did it through a mediator or something. I don't know. That's where the mystery lies. It relies it lies in his his goodness. How can he be good and yet do these things which to us seem seem bad? But God does. When a Syrian army came to destroy Israel, God said, What to Assyria, the rod of my anger? It says, I sent Assyria against this godless nation. Isaiah ten. To be sure, it wasn't Assyria who conquered Israel, and yet the Lord said that He'd sent them and brought suffering upon them. When the Babylonians came and ransacked Jerusalem and took away many of Judah's prisoners, right among them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and killed many, ransacked the city, left it desolate, 
time after time after time in Jeremiah. I won't read them to you, but it says that I did it. I called them. I will do it. I will cast you out of my sight. You can write them down if you want. Jeremiah 1.15, Jeremiah 7, verses 14 and 15, Jeremiah 50, verse 25. Even calling Nebuchadnezzar, the one who brought all these judgments from Babylon, my servant. Well, here's, here's one that's really interesting. Lamentations chapter 3. In fact, why don't you turn there? Lamentations 3, just right after Jeremiah. It's really interesting. Lamentations is a book that just describes the destruction coming upon Jerusalem that's come, and then it peaks in chapter 3, and then it goes down. On either side, it describes the great devastation that came, the great devastation that came, but the comfort came in chapter 3. And the comfort comes precisely in this fact that God is the one who is sovereign over the destruction that's come. Verse 37 and 38. Who is there, of Lamentations 3, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? (laughs) Do you think about God that way? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth or badness? Though God doesn't sin, He sends forth calamity. What is helpful here is verse 33. God doesn't afflict them willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush them under His feet, all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High. He, he doesn't do those things willingly. He doesn't even approve of them. Look at what verse 36 says. But He does them is what verse 38 says. Even, even the biblical writers are trying to say, God doesn't approve it, but He... He does it. He doesn't do it willingly, but He does it. But yet the hope comes in, um, in verse 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He said, God, You are great. I can trust and rest in You because, verse 25, You're good to those who wait for Him. And though even when the godly man experiences the destruction and desolation of his city, God is still good to those who wait for him. That's how God works. Isaiah 45, verse 7 is a good summary verse. The one forming light and creating darkness causes well-being and creates calamity. I am the Lord who does all this. It's just who God is. We go on and on and on and on and on and on. Um, I'm leaving out many other examples of this kind of things. Okay, so you catch where I am. God is sovereign, omnipotent. He is benevolent. He is all good. He doesn't sin. Don't, Don't solve this problem by sacrificing the omnipotence of God. Solve it by trying to grasp His goodness and using evil in that same same breath. Now, there are people, Christian people, who will just reject even what I'm saying today. They're fearful that saying these things might bring guilt upon God, making a conclusion the Bible never makes. And you can tell I've been very careful to say again and again, God is good, He's holy, there's nothing wrong in Him. But yet these are things that He does. I can't connect it. But people are afraid to acknowledge these things because they fear it's going to bring down this. But the Bible says this and says this. Let's embrace them both and admit that God's ways are not our ways in our logic. Because in our logic, these sort of things seem to demonstrate that God is evil, right? If you hire a hitman to knock off your business partner, you're guilty, right? You're guilty of attempted murder. But somehow God does that without committing evil. God is able, as John Calvin says, John Calvin uh, titled his 15th chapter in his first book of the Institutes, he says, God is able to use the works of the ungodly and so bend their minds to carry out His judgment that He remains pure from every stain. Listen again. God is able to use the works of the ungodly and so bend their minds to carry out His judgment that He remains pure from every stain. The Westminster Catechism puts it this way, God from all eternity did by His most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so 
as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but rather established. You can meditate upon that and try to understand that. But basically it says, this is the view of the historic church. That's what people have always put forth, that God uses the works of the ungodly, bending their minds to carry out His judgments in such a way that He remains pure from every stain. Now, there is mystery there. But that's how I think to solve the problem of evil. But lest you think, well, this is just all all just pie-in-the-sky philosophy and there is a lot of theology today. My, my messages in the future aren't going to be like this. My messages in the future are going to be exposing pastor scripture, but this one is just, that's just how it is. But lest you think this is no application to me, you need to realize that you, in some ways, need to believe this very thing for your salvation. You need to believe that God is one who uses the agency of evil, ungodly men to accomplish His purpose because that's exactly what He did in Jesus Christ. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. In this chapter, we see the Lord appointing wicked men to do a wicked task for the most ultimate good that has ever been accomplished. Acts Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We see in this chapter, very beginning of the chapter, Peter and John arrested for preaching the gospel. Peter had the opportunity to speak before the Sanhedrin, explain why they were preaching. The council let them go and said, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They were released. At that, the early church rejoiced, held an impromptu prayer meeting and said in Acts 4, verse 27 and 28, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Think about that again. Truly, O Lord, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, both Roman governors, along with the Gentiles, maybe this is the Roman soldiers, and the peoples of Israel, talking here about the Pharisees and Sadducees, all these people to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. See, God had ordained the events surrounding the death of Christ. He ordained that a traitor would arise along with the price of betrayal. God had ordained that the disciples would scatter. God ordained that Gentiles would rise up against the Lord and against His Christ. God ordained that the very builders of the house would reject the chief cornerstone. God ordained the Messiah would be crucified, Psalm 22, hang on a tree, Galatians 3.13, to become a curse for us. God ordained all those seemingly wicked things. And all those things, aren't they evil? I mean, to betray the Son of God with a kiss? Is that an evil thing? Do you remember what Jesus said about Judas? It would have been better for him not to have been born than to do this monstrous evil. And yet God ordained that. To rise up against the Lord... Psalm 2 speaks about how God promises swift and terrible judgment upon any who would do that. To crucify the Lord of glory. Even the Gentile kings, if they knew who the Lord of glory was, says they wouldn't do that monstrous evil. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2.8 And yet we read in Isaiah 53 verse 10 that it was ultimately the Lord who killed Jesus upon the cross. Because it says there, the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. The Lord was pleased to crush His Son, putting Him to grief. The Lord was pleased to ordain the evil of these men to crush their Son and to bring it about because He knew what it would bring about. And you know what it would bring about? It would bring about a ransomed people who would forever sing the glories of God's grace to save them. That's what it would forever do. And God has, over time, used evil in the world for His own sovereign purpose Listen, and it is no accident. It's no accident these things took place. It wasn't after things started and, and Adam and Eve fell. He says, oh, what am I going to do about a Redeemer, right? Ephesians 1 verse 4 says He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the world was established, He chose us in Jesus. Now, in order to choose us in Jesus, 
He had to ordain the fall, the suffering, Israel wandering all around, the Messiah coming out of that, His crucifixion, His death, His burial, His resurrection. Our faith and belief united in that before the foundation of the world so we could enjoy His glories forever and speak of His grace. That's what He did before the world was created, before sin entered the world. God ordained that Jesus Christ would come and die for sins and that we through faith would be in Him. God is omnipotent. God is benevolent. He uses evil for His purposes to accomplish His wonderful glory. So I just ask you, are you going to accept it or not? Are you going to believe those things or not? Are you going to leave the mystery where the mystery lies? And I just encourage you to realize that God's ways are not our ways. Let's embrace it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for you to test our hearts in these things and to bring us back to Scripture. Lord, may we never be guilty of calling you evil or saying evil dwells in you. And yet, Lord, may we not shrink back also from the wondrous way in which you have um, predestined the, uh, the Roman kings. Take their stand against the anointed and to see the um, chief cornerstone rejected and to see Jesus Christ slain from the foundation of the world according to your sovereign pleasure to bring about this glorious result that we know you and can rejoice in the salvation that you've provided. So God, I pray you'd help us not to, not to balk at these things, not to buck them, but to embrace them because your ways are not our ways. Amen.